I mostly constrain myself to the Shang Han Lun. So even within herbalism, I'm not very eclectic in that sense. I focus on the works of Zhang Zhongjing, the Shang Han Lun, the Jingwei Yalue. But within that system, I recognize that there are so many different commentaries, so many different teachers, so many different styles and opinions. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. You've probably heard that there's no sure road to success, but that the sure road to failure is to try to please everybody. It's curious the way that the human mind works. 80 plus percent of the people we work with love or like what we do. And then there's another small group, eh, they could take it or leave it. And then there's that 2% that is basically a pain in the ass. It might be that nothing we ever do pleases them, or they completely misunderstand our business and keep trying to get something that we simply don't have to offer, or they have some strange entitlement issues that makes them think they somehow should get more and pay less, or sometimes even nothing. We all have had experience with that 2%. And here's the weird thing. Have you noticed how easy it is to dwell on, air quotes here, those crazy people? How easy it is to complain to our colleagues about those very, very few rarefied individuals instead of concentrating on the other 98% of the people that love what we have to offer. Here's the thing. There is useful, valuable feedback that we should listen to from people that actually care about our business and care about what we're doing. Those folks... We should take them seriously and be grateful that they point out areas that we can improve in our practice. But that tiny number of people that just like to make noise, that very small number of people that seem to take up a disproportionate amount of time in our thought, yeah, we should just let those folks go. How do you tell helpful feedback from the crazy-making kind? The crazy-making kind tends to stick more in our craw you'll find yourself complaining more about these folks. You'll think about them as Shen disturbed, but really, it's our Shen that's disturbed. It's really beneficial to be able to unwelcome certain people to your practice or your business, and it's roughly about that 2%. They're not worth the work. Save your energy for the people who genuinely seek what it is that you have to offer. Okay. Today's conversation was recorded live when I was on the West Coast a couple of months ago. Today we're hanging out with Phil Settles and exploring how classic Chinese medicine thought unfolds here in our modern world. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, 
hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Ponsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app slash switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign-up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Geological recently had a West Coast tour. I'm here in the beautiful city of Oakland, California. I'm sitting down with Phil Settles who is an acupuncturist, an herbalist. He runs a doctoral program. He's kind of a jingfang and classic medicine geek, as I recall, and I'm looking forward to getting deep into this with him. Hey, Phil, how's it going? It's going really good, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to sit down with you. You know, we've had some email over the time. We've talked over the years. And, you know, I was in uh, Nanjing last spring at the recording of this uh, podcast. It was last spring. And all your buddies were there who you're doing the doctoral program with, but you were you were still in the state, so I missed you back then. Yeah, we had a couple of missed connections, a few previous opportunities, and I'm happy we finally did get to yeah, get together. Too. It's cool. One of the things I often will ask people is, how did you wind your way into Chinese medicine? I suspect this was not on the listing of offerings when you were in high school. 
Yeah, it certainly wasn't on my radar growing up through high school or even university. And I was pretty much finishing a degree that I didn't have a great deal of interest in. I was in engineering, metals and materials engineering. And there's a lot of opportunity in that field. It was very well funded. There's a lot of jobs. So I was up to a point where I could either accept one of those readily available jobs or really think about, is this what I want to do for the next 20, 30 years? Oh my God, isn't that like the wrong time to ask that question? Maybe you'd ask beforehand. <laughs> uh, in Canada, we do have the, uh, the privilege of getting through school without much debt accumulation. So coming through an undergrad without actually incurring any debt, the stakes are a little bit less high than mm -hmm. in the U.S. Um, but I started to read about a lot of different things and I was concerned about the environment and social justice and international development, but also about health and the things in our immediate kind of community. And so I started to think about different healthcare fields and, and really read about the philosophy behind those different medicines. And reading the Tao Te Ching and uh, the web that has no weaver, I saw, you know, there's this medicine that's based on a philosophy that inspires me in the way that I want to live my life. You came to it through the philosophical side. I, th I came to it through the philosophical side, through through books, in a sense, through ideas and, and almost academia, rather than coming through it to it through personal experience. Right. I mean, that's how a lot of us were exposed to it, you know, including me, because mm -hmm. I had no interest in medicine mm -hmm. whatsoever, but I was interested in getting well. Yeah. 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 So most of my colleagues uh, in school, my classmates, they were body workers and they'd been around Twena or acupuncture and they were looking for ways to save their hands and prolong mm -hmm. their careers. Mm -hmm. uh, or they'd had some kind of a condition that was really helped with Chinese medicine. And my story was different. I, I started visiting schools without ever experiencing acupuncture. I already knew that I wanted to be on the other end of, of that interaction, of that engagement. Wow, that's, a re that's such a different spot to come from. You already knew you wanted to be involved in that because of I might be putting words in your mouth. So if I'm putting words in your mouth, you just you just sure. call me on it. Sure. But it sounds like there was something that you saw about how nature worked and you wanted to explore it through medicine. Absolutely. Taking the heart ideas that are around Western medicine as well, the ideas of do no harm. Mm. Um, and then other philosophical ideas like be the change you want to see in the world. And sure. And if you want to do no harm, to me, as I was reading about natural systems of medicine that are based on, you know, it's like the original individualized medicine as well. The way to do no harm to me was in a one-on-one -on -one interaction with an individual where I try to get to the root of what's going on for them mm -hmm. and use natural substances yeah. and technologies and means to try to address it. Okay. So acupuncture school for you. Yeah. And, you know, most of us walk through, and, and I don't want this to devolve into that whole, you know, TCM versus the rest of the world kind of thing. But, you know, most of us walk in through that. And yet, from what bit I know of you, because of, you know, the people that you hang with and, and some of the discussions we've had, you've acquired a bit of a taste for the classic medicine. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, I certainly have. I was very lucky in Oakland at ACCHS. The teacher who taught me foundations, diagnosis, and later on four classics uh, was Steve Woodley. And he himself had, had drank the Kool-Aid of Jing Fang, of the classics. So he told all of his students, you know, he really recommended actually your book, The Ten Key Formula Families. Oh, really? As one of the first resources we had as an entrance into the Shanghan Lun studies. 
And then he organized his own seminar company and he brought Arno Versluis mm -hmm. to the Bay Area. So Arno Versluis did his ICEAM courses in San Francisco for a number of years. And as a second year student in my MSTCM program, I began to attend. So Have you always been an overachiever? Uh, no, no. I, I was never really academically second inclined. Yeah. Did that stuff make sense to you as a second year student? It was way over my head. And Arnaud went, you know, a hundred miles a second in brilliant language, but inspiring language. Mm. So I, I typed as fast as I could and I still have those notes and still go back to them from eight, nine years ago. But the inspiration was there and the seed had been planted and there was no going back. So I had to continue to go to my regular classes in, in the MSTCM program and, and learn the formulas we learned for state board, learn the acupuncture, learn the internal medicine, et cetera. But the whole time I was doing that, I had split my mind in two and half my mind was in the Shanghai Lun and with the ICAM program and the other half was in school. And I was able, I think, to, to coast through school to a large degree because of how much my mind had to expand to try to understand what Arnaud was teaching. I want to circle back for just a moment. You said it planted a seed. And I'm curious to know what that seed is. When you say planted a seed, what is it that came out of that? I mean, other than, you know, a better understanding of the Shaklan Lun because you've been spending time with it. What actually in like your day-to-day -day practice or the way you think about things came out of that? I would say that the idea of, of planting a seed and expanding my mind beyond the, the technical aspects that were being transmitted beyond the direct knowledge that he was transmitting was an appreciation for uh, the foundation of something, for, as you said, where something comes from. Mm. So the Shanghan Lun recognized throughout Chinese history as the foundation for all later herbalism. To me, he really opened my mind to the idea that to understand herbs as they're used medicinally, you have to go back to the foundations, the Shennong Ben Sao Jing, the Shanghan Lun. Now we have kind of an entryway into the Tang Ye Jing as well. So if you, you want to understand a thing at its core, you, you want the principles, not just the applications or the protocols. Right, because what we get taught in school, I mean, most of us want to get taught. We want to know how to fix something. Yeah. What's wrong? How can I make a difference? We really want to know the applications. Yeah. And, and there's a place for that. But you're talking about something underneath the application. You're talking about something more fundamental here. Yeah, and there are different parts of it. And ultimately, we're clinicians. And our ability to make our livelihoods depends on our ability to have patients come in. And our ability to have patients come in depends on some extent to our ability to help patients feel better. Exactly. So, so we getting can get rid of them. Getting, exactly, yeah. So the incentives are all wrong in clinical medicine, yeah. But uh, part of it in terms of having a patient really improve and be able to, to communicate that to their friends and colleagues and family and for me, in, in the clinic that, I, that I've had here in Oakland, uh, we never really invested in, in marketing. We let the internal marketing be the sole way that the word would get out, and we would just try to practice good medicine. That's our marketing. The way to do that, I think, is a combination of things like protocols, the really kind of the low-hanging fruit of this is a thing that works a lot. If someone has knee pain, try this. If someone has a stomach ache, try this. It works a lot of the time. What if it doesn't work? Mm -hmm. And then you don't know why it didn't work because all you have is a protocol. Whereas if you try to get to the underlying principle behind that protocol 
and the protocol doesn't work, you can respond to that. You can understand why it didn't work. Well, and you can understand why the protocol might work in the first place. Yeah. yeah. And then be creative in new applications and uh -huh. treat new diseases you haven't seen before. Because you know the underlying process. Exactly. This may be a question that is like too big for the time that we have. But I'm going to ask it anyway, because sure. it's my podcast. Sure. I can ask you, any question. You get question. to do that. Yeah. I get to ask the questions. When you talk about the underlying process, what are some of the things that, for you, in the way that, that you understand this and that you work, seem to me most fundamental and most helpful in terms of getting a sense of how, you know, what's holding something in place and how things unfold and how you can help, Right. What are, the, what are some of those fundamentals that for you are key? Uh, in my mind, the first thing that comes up is a little bit of a divide for me internally um, between herbalism and, and acupuncture. Mm -hmm. And those are my two, my two main tools. Mm -hmm. And I do some cupping, I do some gua sha, I do some moxibustion. But there are other people who have way more evolved practices in, in those different branches of Chinese medicine. And for me, the, the fundamentals, the idea of how to think like a physician from really the, the, the top down versus just applying the protocols that are the, the low-hanging fruit are a little bit different at this stage in my development for herbalism and for acupuncture. And Arnaud, in one of his very first lectures, introduces the idea from Zhang Jingyue that the way to understand herbs, herbs are difficult. And it's very difficult to apply them correctly. And if you just try to match herbs to symptoms, you end up making uh, make very poor formulas. You yeah, make a mess. Yeah. And Zhang Jingyue goes on to say that the, the real secret, the two things you have to know are the chi and the flavor. So now herbs do what they do because of their chi, hot, mm -hmm. warm, cool, cold, and their flavor of the five flavors that we learn. And then going into that and delving into the Tang Ye Jing and the different flavor analysis from the Tang Ye Jing that... Uh, is being written up right now by Joshua Park. He's doing wonderful blog posts. He's a young guy. There's a lot of really inspiring young guys yeah. and girls. You know, young ladies, young men coming out um, and just showing just tons of aptitude and interest and creativity in the way that they're, they're relating to Chinese medicine. So I'm impressed with so many people who I'm just discovering at this point through, through social media and, and Facebook. He's so guess, one of them. So there's a place for the distraction machine, huh? Absolutely, yeah. My, my engagement with Facebook is 95% is Chinese medicine. You know, if I look at my feed, that, that's all that's there. Mm -hmm. So it's, there's a place for the distraction machine. Yeah. For those listeners who might not be familiar with the Tang Ye Jing, what is it? The Tang Ye Jing is a lost classic that from some study of history, there's... Uh, kind of theories that the Shenong Bensa Jing itself had disappeared at a certain point of time, but it was preserved in this book called the Tang Ye Jing. So Yin was an imperial cook, someone who rose up from kind of slave or really working class, but worked his way up through the kitchen all the way to the top position, cooking for the emperor and mastering the art of flavor combination. And that this person from the kitchen ended up creating formula medicine applying the Shennong Ben Sao Jing in combinations of medicinals to create formulas for the first time. Well, this is interesting because so often we talk about food as medicine. Exactly. You know, and especially in Chinese medicine where every food has its flavor and its characteristic and, and all that stuff. So you're saying that the first herbalist was a cook? 
Uh, yeah, the the first celebrated herbalist who'd written a classic was a cook. Uh huh. And some people say that even the Shanghan Lun itself, which we hold as a classic, and we say the only reason it's not a Jing is that Zhang Zhongjing himself was humble, so he called it a treatise. Now he didn't call it the Shanghan Lun. He didn't call it the Jingwei Yalue. So we could say that he called it the Shanghan Zabing Lun. But some people think that's not even the original term of what he called it, and that even that came later. But some people suppose what he really had done was written a commentary on the Tang Yijing. That his book that we venerate as a classic was a commentary on some other classic. That other classic was lost uh, for much of history. And in the 20th century, a gentleman kind of produced this work and brought it to the authorities in China. And it was called the Fuxing Zhe. And it was reportedly a, a reprint of something that goes all the way back to Tao Hongjing. So the Fuxing Zhe was written by Tao Hongjing. It contains the Tang Yijing, which is the original formula classic. So you're saying that, that this is something that had been lost for a long, long time. Yeah, lost for a very long time. And then a kind of a controversial story in the 20th century. Well, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, where the hell did that thing come from? So the, the, Missing for a century. The Taoist hermit who opened up the Dunhuang Caves ended up selling a lot of these scrolls and, and documents in order to, I think, fund the, the continued enterprise of, of opening up the caves and, and developing these resources. So someone had purchased this manuscript, this Fuxing Zhe, but then in the Cultural Revolution, it was burned. It was lost in, in all the book burnings. But people had memorized it, committed it to memory, and were able to, to re, reproduce it. So carbon dating is not going to be useful. It's not going to show us it goes back to Tao Hongjing because it's a, it's a brand new document. But analysts poured over it to try to, to see, was this essentially a document that came from soon after the Han Dynasty from back to Tao Hongjing? That's, that's quite a story. Yeah. You know, and especially coming from China where, you know, real authentic fakes are, you know, all over the place. It's, it's an art. Yeah. <laughs> it's an art. So yeah. it, so it kind of makes you wonder. Camps. But I, you know, I've done a little bit of, I mean, I did some study with Arnaud as well. And I remember him talking about the Tang Yeqing and the flavors and, and the, and the phases and how all these things interact with each other, right? You got your wood herbs, your fire herbs, your water herbs. And at least my perspective and I'm no scholar, is even if it was made up, it seems to make a lot of sense. It kind of holds water. Yeah. They say that the clinic is where the, the rubber meets the road. If it's something that can be used for, mm -hmm. for, for good clinical inspiration and to help with good clinical outcomes, then there's value there. There are different camps in China, people who say that it does seem to be an authentic you know, Fuxing Zhe, which contains within it parts of the Tang Yijing, and then other people who maybe think it's a, it's a totally fraudulent document. But I don't think anyone who looks at it would say it's it's an unintelligent reproduction. So Arnaud himself, I think his PhD thesis was on the flavor model in the Tang Yijing. Mm -hmm. So he's very much a Western authority on this piece. And the way that he introduced herbs from that Tang Yijing model was absolutely inspiring. And I couldn't go back to a textbook that says Bai Shao is in Guizhitong because it tonifies the blood, because that's the functional category it was placed in hundreds of years later. That wasn't Zhang Zhongjing's thinking. Those categories didn't exist in the, ben, in the Shenlong Ben Zhao Jing. Mm -hmm. So 
when someone like Arnaud tells you why an herb is in a formula, there's just so much more depth than our standard uh, teachings or textbooks seem to well, indicate. And you start to see it in really different ways. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things I remember from that class I did with Arnaud is that some of the flavors that we classically associate with various phases, because it's going to allow us to pass the national exam. Yeah. It's different. It he gets teaches flipped on it its a head. little bit differently, right? Yeah. So even in the, the, the Neijing, where we have flavor theory, there are different chapters that seem to indicate different things. So we learn one model where wood is associated with sour and fire with bitter, etc., um, and what the Tang Yijing teaches, and a certain chapter in the Shenong, in the in the Neijing as well, flips that on its head, and it says, "Well, what's the natural movement of wood? Is expansion and upward and outward movement, and what's the flavor that we would associate with that? And it's not sour. It would be acrid. It would right? be acrid. Yeah. So now in the Tang Yijing, the herbs that are in the wood class are the acrid herbs, guizhou and fuzi and shengjiang, etc." So there's a, a functional sense there that doesn't exist when we say that wood and sour are mm -hmm. the only connection we can have. Same thing with the uh, with the lung. Absolutely. Right, with the metal element. Yeah. Usually we associate that with being acrid, but those are more the astringent and sour herbs, as I recall. Exactly. So we say that the, the lung is greedy for qi. The lung wants to, to inhale and take in qi, and it governs qi internally. So the, the flavor that is associated with that movement is astringent, it's sour. It's an inward movement associated with the lung. And so to purge the lung, you would use acrid. You would disperse from the lung. Right. And what do we often do for lung issues is Absolutely. Disperse. When there's an yeah. excess condition, yeah. then we would purge the lung excess. Right. Yeah. How does this thinking affect you in your work? In my clinical work, I have several, in a sense, voices in my head because I've had so many wonderful teachers. I've been studying Chinese medicine for, for 10, 11 years. Uh, I've been in practice for, for seven or eight years. And in that time, right away, I got started with, with Steve Woodley, my own teacher at ACCHS, and then Arnaud Versluce, Dr. Huang Huang, who, who you introduced me to through your work, and then Michael Fitzgerald began teaching at our school in Oakland as well. And he was, he'd studied with Huang Huang in the past and has kind of a, a personal relationship. So Dr. Huang came to Oakland a number of times. I ended up through Iran, who's another friend of yours, and, uh, and Mark Gearing being invited into a special study group to do a PhD with Dr. Huang in Nanjing University. Uh, I've studied with Suzanne Robidou quite extensively, and she's one of my core teachers. So I have few different Shanghan Lun teachers' voices in my head at all times. How do you, how do you keep that stuff straight? Uh, well, sometimes one of them speaks louder than the others. Mm. So with a particular patient, I might be taking the pulse and something from Arnaud's teaching. And, and Arnaud's his teaching is very, uh, has an emphasis on, on the pulse. So it's very rich in theory. And it was the original kind of poetic terminology of physiology and pathophysiology that I fell in love with but it also comes back to the pulse in the end. And I might feel something in the pulse that absolutely is going to dictate what I do with a particular patient. Or the patient walks in and they look a certain way, their eyes are moving a certain way, their complexion is a certain way, the quality of the skin, the temperature of their hands, whether there's moisture or not. And a lot of what comes from, from Dr. Huang 
where observation and body palpation is such a big part of finding really the formula presentation telling you who a patient is. Uh, and that might speak louder. Or as the symptoms start to be reported in the intake, because uh, we have all these four diagnostic methods, if it's the symptoms themselves that start piling up and I can say, oh, I've got all these symptoms of an external condition and it seems to be more Taiyang than Xiaoyin in this particular patient, but I also have, oh, there's a little half-half here because of bitter taste and, and dizziness, etc. Then I might start to do my categories of six conformation, uh, six syndrome differentiation from Suzanne Robidou. So all those teachers are there. I, I continue to study with each of them. Uh, either in person or just going over the materials that I have from them. Uh, so those voices are guiding me in clinic, but one or another may be more emphasized in any particular case. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at Ann Cecil Sturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I think this is one of the real strengths of our medicine, even though from a certain perspective, you look at it and go, well, these are three different things. How do you know which one is air quotes here? Right. Mm -hmm. Especially in our Western world, we're looking for that thing that's right. Mm -hmm. You know, evidence-based and blah, blah, blah. I'm not going to go into that. But we have this rich tradition that argues with itself for one, but also has these various perspectives. I'm really taken by the way that you, you speak about this. It makes sense to me that you've got different ways of looking at and interacting with patients. And at any one moment, one of those will sort of come to the fore. And, and you can sort of open it up and see what's in there. Absolutely. That's the limits to which I allow myself to be really eclectic, because that word is very relative. And there are people within Chinese medicine who say that Chinese medicine itself is a tool in their tool belt. And then they'll reach out to another system like functional medicine is very popular, for example, with acupuncturists. Um, and then that becomes another tool in their tool belt. And for me, I'm not quite on that level of eclecticism. Chinese medicine is not my tool belt. It's my whole worldview mm -hmm. clinically. And then even within Chinese medicine, from an herbal perspective, I mostly constrain myself to the Shang Han Lun. So even within herbalism, I'm not very eclectic in that sense. I focus on the works of Zhang Zhongjing, the Shang Han Lun, the Jingwei Yaolue. But within that system, I recognize that there are so many different commentaries, so many different teachers, so many different styles and opinions. And I might learn something really useful from 
from one teacher for a particular formula and something else from a different teacher for another formula. What happens when in the, in the Shanghan Lun we have, by I think the year 1900, there have been over 800 books published about it. And at this point, there are thousands of books published about the Shanghan Lun. And there's nothing else in Chinese medicine with that level of scholarship and accumulated knowledge throughout 1800 years. Well, and we were just looking at some books before we started rolling the tape here today. You've got, got a couple of them here. Some of them, one of them is about the size of a phone book. You all know what a phone book is, right? Maybe, <laughs> maybe not. But, but what we used to call the phone book, you've got a book here that's roughly that thick. Um, yeah. From someone, that, you know, from someone in China that's translating this stuff now. Yeah. I, I have a, a little bit of OCD where if, if a new book has come out about the Shanghan Lun, I want to know about it. So I just do searches. Uh -huh. maybe, maybe once a month I'll, I'll get on Amazon or, or just through Google and I'll, I'll try and see if there's any new material out. Um, and I found these two books by a gentleman, Martin Wang, within the last couple of months. And they were published recently. And his goal seems to be to make some of the material that's available freely online in Chinese available for an accessible price in English. Is he a Chinese medicine practitioner or is he just a, a, a fan? Do you have any sense of who this cat is? Uh, I don't have much of a sense of who he is, but occasionally he includes his own opinions and they seem very informed. So I'm quite confident he is, in fact, an herbalist, a Chinese medicine practitioner. So he in these books includes a lot of opinions of a lot of the current contemporary masters of Jingfang, of classical formulas. And then occasionally he throws in his own two cents. Mm -hmm. So when, when you say the opinions of modern masters, how do you find those opinions to be helpful to you in your work? Well, I think one of the, the beautiful and most clinically important things about going back to the Neijing, going back to, say, the Shanghan Lun, is that in, in the Eastern medical worldview, a thing doesn't necessarily get outdated. So from a Western medical perception, the newest edition of a book is always the truest. Mm -hmm. And then you throw out the sixth edition because the seventh edition came out. And in Chinese medicine, there's a different sense of what happens on a timeline. And Arnaud illustrates this the most beautifully I've ever heard. One is the simple analogy that the water is purest at the source. Mm. So if you want something in its original true form at its highest expression, you go back to where it came from in a sense. Um, but he also illustrates a timeline of where a person stands with regards to the future and the past. And in an intuitive sense in the West, we would definitely say that if I'm standing on a timeline, the past is behind me and the future is ahead of me. I'm walking away from what has passed towards what's coming up. Yes. And there's a logic there. Sure. And he introduces another idea that what's in the past is known to you. You can see it in your mind's eye. What's in the future is dark and mysterious. So in a sense, you're reversed here. You're, lo you're reversed. looking... You're looking at your past and you're walking backwards. To make sense backwards. of our present. You're walking backwards into the future. Because what's in the future is unknown. It's dark. You have no eyes to see it. Mm -hmm. So uh, just that view of what's, what's valuable, uh, what's known. The thing that's the most known about is the oldest thing. Because there's 1,800 years of accumulated experience of doctors in China working with these formulas, adding layer upon layer upon layer of insight. So the oldest thing is also the thing that's made the most new through all that accumulated experience. 
Whereas if a formula was created in the 50s or 60s and used in a hospital setting, there's very little that's written about it. We don't know much about it. We don't know much about it yet. I mean, there might be some Western-ish type research on it. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that tend to get a lot of note, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they, but they don't have the test of time. Yeah, which, uh, which within our paradigm is a very valuable thing, that test of time. Yeah, evidence-based means it's been around a thousand years or so. And hasn't been discarded. Yeah. And hasn't been discarded. Yeah. 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 So you've been at this stuff about 10 years now. You had this engineering background. Yeah. Like from engineering to medicine. That I, That's kind of cool. I love that uh, juxtaposition. Yeah. How would you say that learning medicine is different than learning something like engineering? Well, on one level, the first thing that comes to mind is, as, as you did the introduction today, you said that I'm a bit of a, a classical formulas geek or a Shanghan Lun geek, and no one would have called me a geek before. I wasn't a geek about engineering. I was not going to sit in the front of the class. I might not show up to class. So engineering, certain subjects that I had maybe aptitude in were more about going through the motions. Mm. If you're, you know, you're, you're a male and you... You're doing well in your sciences, but you're not so good that you should go straight into physics or straight into chemistry and do that purely. You're kind of expected to go into engineering. Uh-huh. So I always did the thing that S Smart enough sense. to get it and yeah. you can like build stuff and be and productive and useful. People say it opens doors and if you go yeah. into something else, you might be closing doors. And um, So I did the thing that I was supposed to do up through my, my bachelor's degree, but there was never a real passion there. Mm-hmm. And when I, I didn't expect to ever be uh, really academically inclined. I had pragmatic reasons to, to, to be drawn to Chinese medicine and think that I can do this as a clinician and be very happy and help people and do no harm and be living uh, in a way that was very integral because the things that inspire me philosophically in terms of how I'd like to live my life also inspire the practice of that form of medicine. So you get to live it. You live it, yeah. Mm. It's not a disconnect. Your job is not disconnected from your life. So that drew me into Chinese medicine. But once I got in and I had these teachers, Steve Woodley and Arnaud Versluce and then Huang Huang, Suzanne Robidoux, etc., it really, there was impossible for Chinese medicine to be my job. It's not my job. It's not a thing that I do. It's this enormous part of my life. It's how I engage with the world. So it was a very natural evolution for me to, to keep spending time in the school environment to begin teaching, to take on the reins at ACCHS to kind of design this doctorate program. Uh, it's, I can't help but be passionate about the teachings, the history, the tradition, and the people who have something really valuable to share. I mean, this medicine is not exactly easy to learn. I mean, we can certainly learn what we need to know to pass the exam to get a license. That's... I mean, in some ways, that's probably not difficult because it, it's a certain knowledge set. There are certain things you just have to know. You can kind of memorize it or, you know, if, if nothing else, you just you practice that stuff for enough time that you can just be comfortable taking the test. And, but what that has to do with actually really learning, especially when the stuff that we have been exposed to isn't working. You were talking earlier about there are there's low-hanging fruit, there's things that are that are not that difficult, 
But then there's situations that are much more difficult. You can't use protocols and you can't use like formula prescriptions. You need to go to some basic principles. What would you say some of the basic principles of Chinese medicine are? And when I say basic principles, I'm, I'm not just talking about like, I'm totally drawing a blank, but you know, we've got our little Chinese medicine principles, yin and yang and you know, blah, blah, blah. But principles of life. What would, you, what would you say are some of the things that have been most helpful to you in learning to practice this medicine? Really, one of the first things that occurs to me is something that I've I picked up from Dr. Huang Huang, who very, very candidly would say about a lot of the theory we learn in Chinese medicine, this is the stuff we use, this is the language we use when we talk to each other. It's not actually what informs our clinical decisions. Oh, wow. So the stuff that I was learning in school at that time which seems like the be-all and end-all of how to think like a Chinese medical physician, he was, he was bringing it back to a very pragmatic sense of, you know, you might end up giving herbs or formulas because of things that are very simple, very observable, very palpable, and not going into the realm of philosophy and theory. Now, at the same time, I still love the philosophy and the theory, and I teach foundations and diagnosis in the master's program. And I, when I study the Shang Han Lun, I study six-channel theory or six-conformation oh, theory. Man, my suspicion at this point about the six conformations, that stuff is endless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you get into qi transformation as part of it. So it includes the channels, it includes divisions, it includes stages of disease, it includes uh, open-close pivot theory, and uh, root branch manifestation theory, et cetera. Could I ask you a question about that? Yeah. Okay. Open pivot close. I've asked some other people about this recently. This is, this is one of these things. I'm showing my total ignorance here in public. I've heard about it. I've shaken my head yes, like I think I kind of have it. But at the end of the day, open pivot close, I don't quite get it. I keep hearing it. Mm-hmm. It keeps showing up. Yeah. I got a feeling it's probably important. Yeah. Could you explain this to me? Sure. We can try. Okay. Um, so one is a starting assumption that everything in the classical texts has to have some importance. And if it's not important to us yet, or we're not using it clinically yet, it must be some limit to our own understanding. We mm. start from there, and then we see a chapter, and it talks about open-close pivot of the six conformations. And then we say that has to be important in some way. And then... A couple of hundred years later, Zhang Zhongjing writes about formulas and groups them into six conformations. Then people, I mean, it took about a thousand years, but people started to look at it and say, you know, how do we relate to the formulas according to this Kai He Shu open close pivot principle? And one idea is if you have six conformations, that doesn't describe at all how they relate to one another or how you end up getting a, a circle, really, because physiology right. is a cycle. Otherwise, yes. it's just stagnant. So the way that uh, there's movement between these six conformations, between Tai Yang and Yang Ming and Xiao Yang, etc., is that we can place them all on a, on a circle representing our physiology. That makes so much sense. I mean, remember when I first learned it, there were these layers. It was like yeah. a layer cake. Yeah. Right? You get down to the Jui Yin, and, and then it was like, okay, the end. Yeah, exactly. So if it's linear like that and it's the end, then what happens? Because nothing in our body is the end. Right. Everything in our body is, is a circle and, and based on these cycles in Chinese medicine. So we have a narrative of what happens kind of throughout the day or through our body in, in a, a period of time. And Tai Yang is, is this opening. 
Tai Yong is like us waking up in the morning and engaging with the world. Mm. And even from a channel perspective on the body, if Tai Yong, which is on our back, if it's engaged and flexed, then our body is kind of opening up to the world. Mm -hmm. And you can't open forever or you die. Mm -hmm. because the body's not linear. So if it opens and opens and opens, then yang's going to keep going up and out and eventually separate from yin. And that's the end of our that story. Ends. So what has to happen after opening is closing. So yang ming closes. So yang ming now is this descent, this internalization of yang. So it happens, you know, one second after noon, one second after maximum yang, yang has to come back in. And that's this movement of yang closing that's represented by Yang Ming. And then Tai Yin opens to receive from Yang Ming. So we can say food going into the body is this Yang Ming descent and internalization, and then the absorption of that food is Tai Yin. Is tai yin. Oh yeah, I, that makes sense. Okay. So Tai Yin opens to receive and also opens into the body to distribute nutrients mm -hmm. from food. Going from outside to inside. From outside to inside. Opens to the inside. Yeah. Tai Yang opens to the outside. Precisely. Okay. After Tai Yin, we have uh, Shao Yin on this circle, and it's the pivot. It's the pivot between Tai Yin and between Jue Yin. One of the ways that's explained is that Shao Yin has heart and kidney mm -hmm. from a channel or, or, or Zong organ perspective. Mm -hmm. And heart is fire. It's the mother of earth. So as the pivot... Shaoyin supports Tai Yin on one side through fire engendering earth. And it also has kidney, which is water, which supports liver, wood on the other side in Jue Yin. So the situation of Shaoyin between Tai Yin and Jue Yin is that it can support either and pivot between either by being the mother of both of those phases. I see that. But there we're looking at the five phase correspondence. So there is this we're looking connection. At, we're looking yeah. at how Shaoyin manifests as wood and Shaoyin manifests as fire. Wait, did uh, I say Shaoyin that right? as water and fire. Shaoyin is water and fire. Which can be the mother as of As opposed to Shaoyin as fire and fire. Precisely, yeah. So we look at both of the organs involved in Shaoyin. And then we can go deeper and say that Shaoyin is ultimately a story of the relationship between fire and water, between heart and kidney. Uh, and then closing up this cycle, we've got Jue Yin, which is the closure of Yin, this ultimate Yin, which then leads into Shao Yang, which is another pivot. And Shao Yang is the pivot between Yin and Yang. It's the little Yang that's going to give birth to the big Yang of Tai okay. Yang. So we have both Jue Yin and Shao Yang as pivots. We've got Shao Yin and Shao Yang as pivots. Shao Yin yeah. and Shao Yang. Okay, this is good. We're getting. I'm getting a little lesson here. There you go. Xiao Yin and Xiao Yang, the two Xiaos. That's right. Are the pivots. That's right. Now, some of the ways that people have related this to, to formulas and understanding a formula deeper is that if this is part of the physiology of Tai Yang, to understand Tai Yang, we have to understand that Tai Yang has this opening nature mm -hmm. and it relates to the skins and the, the skin and the exterior. And Tai Yang can open too much or it can fail to open. In both would be a problem. Both would be a problem. And both have a solution, in a sense, from the Shang Hanlun, that if Tai Yang opens excessively and we have easy sweating, then Gui Jirtong is appropriate. If Tai Yang fails to open and the exterior is blocked by cold, constricting, contracting, congealing, and the body can't vent, 
So there's cold and body pain and stiffness and an inability to vent. So fever starts to mount. That's a mahuang tang problem. Aha. So now formulas get related to the inability of one of these conformations to, to do its function according to Kaiho Shu theory. And if it's not doing it, we'll either help promote it or if it's doing too much, you, you restrict it and bring it back down. Precisely, yeah. You could think of that as kind of an excess or deficiency. Precisely, yeah. Excess opening or deficient opening, excess closing or deficient closing. So that's one of the models that uh, historical commentators have come up to work with the Shanghan Lun over the last thousand years. And the literature is just kind of riddled with this material of people saying, this book saves lives. We know that. Sun Tzu Miao said that. Uh, and all these other uh, commentaries have talked about how important this is. How do we relate to the book? Because it's not written like protocols. No, it's, no. It's not the low-hanging fruit. None of the classics are the low-hanging fruit. They're the it stuff seems you... like all the classics, and, and this is why they're, they're in some ways poetic, and this is why at times it seems impenetrable, mm -hmm. is because it's not giving us a specific. Yes. It's talking about a principle. Yes. Yeah, and that's the thing that underlies all the specifics, and it's the idea that the, the I Ching with 64 iterations of combining yin and yang lines allows you to understand, interpret, and engage with the 10,000 things. If you understand those 64, the 10,000 are explainable. You don't have to learn 10,000 protocols. Uh, and it's the same with the Shanghan Lun. If, if one starts to try to delve into the principles, then they can see new diseases that no one else has ever treated before and creatively apply a finite set of principles, a finite set of herbs and formulas, and treat it accordingly. This is, for me, one of the things I do love about Chinese medicine and makes it really hard to practice in yes. some ways. At yes. times, it makes it hard to practice. At times, it makes it easy because if we really can grasp the principle of a situation and we see a condition our patients have yeah. and, and we see that principle at work, well, then coming up with the herbs for that really is not that difficult. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. the formula writes itself. Yeah. Once the kind of, some people call it the pathomechanism or something like this, or the pattern is truly grasped, uh, then the formula writes itself because there's this true understanding. And I've heard this term clinical gaze, mm -hmm. and it refers to this idea of being able to look at something that's seemingly very complex and see simplicity within it. Mm -hmm. So that to me is, is the challenge and ultimately the goal in every clinical interaction is to find the elegant simplicity that underlies all the things that are happening. There's a tendency, I think, in Chinese medicine, at least as it's taught in the West, through the model that we learn in the MSTCM program, the Zongfu model of diagnosis, to say that if we have a complex patient, it means they have a lot of patterns. And I think this goes back to some of our leading authors, like Bob Flaws, in case studies or in teachings. And he would say that you know he doesn't treat tennis elbow or stuff like that in his clinic, he'd acquired a certain reputation and it was only looking for certain types of cases of, of chronic, uh, difficult, sticky diseases, things like this. But if the diagnosis has five or six or seven different patterns, to me that never seemed like that clinical gaze that's finding simplicity no, 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 no. In fact, I, I remember a teacher that I had when I was in school. If we come in and say, oh, there's some spleen deficiency and some liver stagnation 
and uh, you know a little bit of heart fire. The teacher would look at us and go, "What are you prejudiced against the lung? Don't you want to throw something in for the lung?" Yeah, yeah, you missed one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that to me, there's a certain confusion that arises where if you have 25 symptoms and you come up with seven patterns for them, uh, you're no better off than when you had 25 symptoms. You still mm -hmm. have too many things to treat and no clear order, what to prioritize, what comes first, what's underlying, what one thing, if you treat it, will resolve everything else. If you have seven patterns, you don't know that. So some of the teachers who've inspired me have, have systems that they can practice, primarily from the Shang Han Lun, where a complex thing ends up being a simple formula, a smaller formula directly from the text. And they can say, this is why all of this other stuff can actually be explained by this one root presentation. So what otherwise would have taken, you know, you divide your formula up into five or six or seven and you're treating the liver chi stagnation and the spleen chi deficiency and the damp and the heart fire and something for the lung. Now you say, well, this is actually a Xiao Chai Hutong pattern mm -hmm. because of this, this, and this. They say that when a Shang Han Lun formula is properly applied, it's like a key in a lock. The whole thing shifts. The whole thing turns. So for me, I'm always drawn to that idea of, of the simplicity that can be gleamed in a seemingly complex situation. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, I didn't learn herbal medicine this way, but if I was to re, if I was to start from zero and relearn it, I think one of the things I'd want to do, actually, I could probably do this right now if I wanted to. Now that I think about it, because, you know, after doing it for 20 years, why not just start over? Mm -hmm. You know, just add something new in. The building blocks of so many of the Shanghai Lun formulas, I mean, there are four or five herbs. There's not a lot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the difference between one formula and another is simply dosage. Right. That really tells you something yeah. about understanding the underlying principles of things. But it seems to me, I would have probably had a lot less confusion over the years, and I might even have less confusion now if I would just go back to using one formula with the idea that there is a principle here mm -hmm. and I'm looking to treat that principle and to just use it without any modification so I can find out what does it actually do. That's but it's so hard not point. to do that. Yeah. It's so hard not to go, oh, and a little bit of this for that and a little bit of that for Absolutely. this. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Because I want my patient to feel better. But then we end up not 
really knowing. I think of that as, as first-year student syndrome, where if we tell a first-year student to go in the herb room, where all the herbs are categorized according to category, functional category, mm. the same way they are in the textbook, mm -hmm. and we say, here's a patient, and these are all their symptoms, make a formula. They say, okay, well, what's the pattern? It's a wind-cold exterior invasion, let's say. They would go to that section of the herb room and they would look at all the herbs and Jingjie looks good and Fangfeng looks good and Guizhou looks good and Zisuye looks good and Xiang. They all match the signs and the symptoms and the pattern. So you'd make your formula by emptying that part of the shelf. Or if you have a joint pattern of, say, uh, a liver tea stagnation with, with qi and blood deficiency like Xiaoyaosan or something like this, you'd go to all those different sections of the herb room pull and, some things and out. pull some things out and... Mm -hmm. But why would you stop at Renshen? You should put some Huangqi in there. That tonifies Qi. It sounds good. And Shanyao sounds like everyone can use Shanyao. And so there's always that tendency to add more, that temptation to add more. Mm -hmm. With mm -hmm. acupuncture as well. Right. If the patient has more symptoms, you're tempted to add more needles. Yeah. Oh, I better do this needle. I want to cover yeah. my bases. Why, yeah. Why would you not cover your bases? Um, and then some of the inspiring teachers that I've known, like Henry McCann, who teaches Dong acupuncture and really relates it all back to Chinese medical theory from the classics. So when you take a Dong acupuncture class with him, you're learning about the Neijing. You're learning all the way back to the Han Dynasty. Like he relates everything to the principles. So we're He's, back to principles. We're here. back to principles. He doesn't say for this symptom, use this point. For this symptom, use yeah. this point. But he says that if he's treating and he goes beyond five, six, seven needles, he realizes he doesn't know what he's doing. Mm -hmm. So when you have clarity, you can use a minimalist intervention. When you have confusion, you need more herbs, you need more points. And so many of us, when we start learning, we learn in a way that the more is better versus this idea that less is more, less is better. Yes. Well, I think there's also something. I'm just starting to come to this. Let me run this by you and see if it makes sense. Yeah. This is just an idea that I've been chewing on lately. And it, and it primarily comes from doing some work with Toby with this um, acupuncture. And it's just, it, it's kind of messing with my mind a little bit. So it seems that in our schooling, we're primarily taught pathology where we learn to look at things that are not working correctly. Yes. Right? So if you think about a Yang Ming disease, you're thinking about intense heat, you're thinking about sweating, you're thinking about dryness. Correct. Right? But has anyone taught us what does a healthy Yang Ming actually look like? Right? With Xiao, Xiao Yin diseases, mm -hmm. we're often using really hot acrid herbs, mm -hmm. right? Futsa and Xixin and Ganzi. Yeah. Right? When I think about the Xiao Yin, well, there's the heart. It doesn't get much hotter than that. Yeah. We're thinking about the kidney yang and Ming Mun fire, you know, fire in the water. Well, that's hot too. And yet, when we think about the pathology, I remember hearing, oh, Shaoyin illness is illnesses of cold. So again, I've, I've got this mind that thinks about pathology and how yeah. to deal with pathology because I want my patients to get better. But it occurs to me that if I really knew, if I better understand, and, and at this moment, I would say I primarily don't understand the proper physiological functions of the six layers, right? the proper physiological functions of the five phases. I know more about their pathologies than I do their 
healthy state. Yeah, that's a very good point. When we learn foundations and we learn these statements of fact from the Neijing about mm. the different roles and functions of the 12 officials, the Zongfu organs, we learn that, but only briefly. And then we spend so much time with the patterns of, of disease, the patterns of disharmony. Right. And the same if, you know, the, the cursory glance that we have at the six conformations in our MSTCM degree, which can be summarized on half a page, and it is an H.B. Kim book that people use for studying for exams. It's really just one table and there's a few signs and symptoms and there's one or two formulas for each conformation. Um, and all we learn is the disease mm -hmm. and the, the physiology goes back in a sense to that open, close pivot model of how does this circle turn? Because when the circle turns, there's health. Yes. If anything gets blocked on that circle, there's disease. The same way with the, with the channels in the body, if there's flow, if the river is flowing and then it's a clean river and if it gets blocked and things start to accumulate, um, so that Shaoyin, for example, in, in the pivot, we can say that it's located between Taiyin and Jueyin because it can engender either from that, that five-phase perspective. But also because it has a fire organ and a water organ, it can pivot into a cold pathology or pivot into a hot pathology. So we speak of Shaoyin cold transformation and Shaoyin hot transformation. And we have Sinni Tang or Zhen Wu Tang. And then on the other side, Huang Yan E Jiao Tang for example, yeah. for a heart fire with an underlying kind of kidney yin deficiency, if we use that terminology, water deficiency. Um, so it's helpful, I suspect, to also really understand proper physiological function. Yeah. Because if you know what the proper stuff is, like you're just talking about, you'll know how it's deviated from what's proper and if you know what proper is, then it's much easier to bring it back because you know where you're headed. Absolutely, yeah. I think that gives you the directionality and it lets you interpret when there's deviation from normalcy. And that's what disease is, like dis-ease. The natural state should be ease. Mm. And illness is a deviation from what is normal. And we don't spend enough time identifying what is normal. So all we do is we identify the, the patterns of disease and... Uh, and we Which learn is in helpful, sense, and protocols. we should know that too. Yeah. I mean, as doctors, we it's incumbent on us to know that. It, yeah, it just seems to me this, this whole idea of knowing what's normal yeah. might be a deficiency. I, I agree with you, and I think that health is our end goal, but it's not our starting point in our education in that mm. sense. So it should be where we start and where we seek to bring people back to. That should be our sense of, of equilibrium, and we should have it well understood and well-defined and maybe we don't enough in our education holy smokes yeah there's a lot of interesting things to talk about with chinese medicine <laughs> endless really anything that's sort of got your attention these days i mean you you've got your finger in a number of pies including running a doctoral program including working on a phd anything that's just kind of got your attention lately just Stuff that you're looking at or working with in clinic or books that have got you thinking? Uh, there are a lot of things that do have my attention and I, that I do spend time with. Uh, I'd say one of the, the big things that I'm interested in, and it's been a, a great quality in terms of actually doing my work with the doctorate program, is that I, I'm always paying attention and I'm interested in, in who's doing what, who's teaching what, and what are the different uh, mentalities within our profession because our profession is so varied 
Uh, there's all these, if you look on, on Facebook, I think is a fairly good overview of the different types of practitioners and different types of people and what kind of groups crop up and what are their internal philosophies, whether or not they define that. Um, but there are scholars of Chinese medicine group, whereas kind of the, the, I would call it the hardcore academics, many of whom are, are translators and really engage with the study of the language and, and philology and the philosophy. And a lot of people from outside end up feeling like it's, it's uh, a little bit too heady or not quite clinical enough for them. And they create their own groups. And there's some groups that are in between that are, that are about the practice of the, the classics in clinic. And that's where I really like to go see case studies where people are thinking it through with classical principles, mm -hmm. other groups like Chinese medicine that works, that's almost completely devoid of, of mentioning terms like yin yang, five phases, zong fu organs, eight principles. Like it's, it's a place where people are gravitating towards styles that don't go back to Chinese medical diagnosis in a big way. So it's more of that uh, application ready, protocol heavy approach. And then in designing a curriculum, I'm paying attention to what people out there in the field are kind of craving for, but that I also think stands for what Chinese medicine represents and trying to create a, a group of people informed in the history, the tradition rooted in that, in that tradition of Chinese medicine, but who are also going to be clinical rock stars. And then finding the teachers who best represent that mix of both worlds of the theory and the tradition and the, the pragmatic aspects of making better clinicians. Sounds like you're being a curator more than anything else these days. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a curator. I'm, I'm studying what people are doing and, and finding those things that fit the mold of what we're trying to promote. And it's been an incredibly validating experience for two years to be communicating with teachers, one who are like my personal heroes that I, I read their books and I relate to what they're teaching and I have great admiration for them. And then to be able to reach out to them and have a reason to say, would you be interested in coming to Oakland and, and teaching in our program? And then getting the feedback from 30 or 35 students who are saying this has just been for them an incredible program over two years. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've learned so much. And even the ones who've just finished last December and completed their courses have already told me they're sad. They're sad that they're not coming back for January and February for the next so after being in clinic for 5, 10, 15 years and coming back into this scenario over two years of having all these amazing teachers come in and change things radically for them. Sometimes you have an, an entrenched practice, an entrenched habit. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is what I was referring to just a few minutes ago when I said, in some ways, I feel like I need to relearn herbs or take a whole different approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, sometimes there's value is, in shaking things it's up. It's helpful to shake things up. You're you're working on a PhD. I am with yeah. uh, Dr. Huang Huang. What do you work on? What is it about? My uh, subject for my thesis. Most of his students end up doing a formula presentation. So I'm studying the formula presentation for Jen Wutong. Jen Wutong. True warrior decoction. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Tell us a little bit about Jen Wutong. So Jen Wutong is a, is a beautiful formula. I'm passionate about it, which is why I, I chose it. Um, one, the name means true warrior, which is kind of rad. And then you find out that the original name of the formula was Shren Wutong, mm -hmm. which means dark and mysterious dark, warrior. Dark and warrior of the that's north. at least as rad. Yeah. Dark warrior of the north. So I, I would think Dark Warrior sounds to me like Batman, and I could get behind a formula like that. 
Arnaud was someone who first made Zhen Wutong into a beautiful entity for me through his language of speaking from the Tang Ye Jing, mm -hmm. that Fuzi is the water herb of the wood class. So by being wood, it engenders fire, and that fire then warms the water. Mm -hmm. And you can do that for all five herbs within that formula, and you get this beautiful poetic sense of what every herb is doing in there, and how ultimately you're promoting fire and you're promoting earth to control water. Now, we have a population all over the world. Demographics are shifting where we're getting a larger and larger kind of geriatric population. Gen uh, Wutong is a formula that treats primarily older people or severe disease, kidney disease, heart disease, hypothyroidism, you know, a whole range of types of conditions. And in Dr. Huang Huang's style of formula presentation, what you're ultimately seeking is to, uh, to flesh out the type of person that a formula treats and the types of diseases that a formula treats. And then that combination of those two things give you a very global view of what a formula treats with the idea that when a patient walks in, you can very quickly recognize that they are the, presenting the type of thing that gets treated by that formula. It's like building vocabulary in a new language. Absolutely, yeah. So most of the way we approach diagnosis in Chinese medicine is starting with an idea that we have a blank sheet of paper and we do the four diagnostic methods, observation, listening, smelling, inquiry, palpation. We get all this data and then we put all that data in our minds like a blender and we, we stir it up and then it's, it spits out some kind of a juice, right? Like some kind of conclusion and we can't necessarily explain how we reach that conclusion. And the guy next to me, if he saw the same data on the piece of paper, would have a different conclusion. So we have very poor inter-rater reliability in our medicine. Mm -hmm. And there's something mysterious that happens in the black box of our mind where we put in the data and it spits out some kind of pattern of disharmony or combination of patterns. And from there, the, from the pattern and identifying an invisible pathomechanism, we choose a treatment principle, then we choose the herbs or the formula. And Dr. Huang Huang's style which follows in the tradition of certain doctors like Kuchin and Shu Dachun and Todo Yoshimasu and, and the Japanese influence he got from Kampo uh, is very, very different. It's learn the formulas very, very well from the original lines, from the commentators. Learn the formula presentation and you will recognize when a formula is necessary, is indicated for a particular patient. They just walk in the door. They walk in the door. There's a Guajer girl. Yeah. She's you, wearing a scarf. You see them, you notice what they're wearing, you notice their disposition, you notice their body type, you notice their complexion, you notice their symptoms as well. You, you do engage in that inquiry and see what kind of conditions they've got going on. And then from there, you, you end up recognizing this is a Guajer presentation. This is a Xiao Chai Hutong presentation. This is a Zhen Wutong presentation. But you haven't gone through the mental acrobatics of saying this is a spleen and kidney yang deficiency with accumulation of water that's flaring yeah. up to it, vex it, the it's heart. It's just a whole different way of looking. It's a different way of looking at reality. It. And it, in a sense, bypasses some of the philosophical steps that happen between the four diagnostic methods and the conclusion, and it goes right to the conclusion. And it only happens if one understands and seeks to understand those formula presentations very well. Yeah. Well, Phil, I have thoroughly enjoyed this hour. I can't believe the time has gone by as quickly as it has. You should come by more often. This was a treat. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, 
share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.